Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. It's been said that more people suffer harm from our management of diabetic ketoacidosis than from the disease itself. So how do we avoid these pitfalls in the emergency department? Adan Atriham is an emergency physician from Houston, Texas, and he has a special interest in this area after many years of practice. Adan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Todd. Adan, in the emergency department, most cases of DKA can be fairly straightforward to diagnose. But in your experience, what are some of the challenges with diagnosing DKA? Um, well, just as you said, uh, DKA can be challenging in the beginning. And the reason basically is because of the symptoms, especially in the early stages of DKA, can be very generic, very uh, you know, nonspecific. Anyone with uh, headaches, some nauseas, some abdominal pain, fatigue, muscle aches, these are very common complaints, and patients in the early course of DKA can present with any of this. Some of the triggers that um, the patients present with too, I guess, can mask the, the overlying complaint as well. What are some of the triggers that um, uh, trigger DKA? Well, infections being the most common one, um, and patients with uh, typical gastroenteritis, for example. And uh, if you don't mind, I will uh, recap a, very quickly a case that really changed my practice. Um, and this was a teenager who arrived to the emergency department with what seemed to be just run-of-the-mill gastroenteritis. You know, maybe had some bad turkey sandwich and she started having vomiting and some belly pain. And until then, my practice was to you know, just give me some mighty fluids, give me some defrenacin, some for the pain, put them in the corner, let them to get better, and then discharge. But this kid was not getting better after two hours, three hours, and he was still vomiting, having abdominal pain. He says, you know what, let me get some labs in this kid. And sure enough, his blood sugar was no more than 500 milligrams per deciliter, which I think is about 22, 23 uh, minimals. And uh, he had lots of ketones. So this kid had his presented is presenting um, a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes as a gastroenteritis. And from that moment on, any patient who looks like a potentially be sick with general complaints, I get a finger glucose and a urine. That will give me the earliest warning sign that I might have a decay in my hands. Then you talked about the four I's and the two T's in, um, in your lecture. Can you tell us what they are? Uh, yeah, it's a very easy mnemonic to remember for the triggers of DKA. Fortunately, most of the most common triggers start with an I, including infection being the most common. And this is the one that we need to be uh, most concerned. And infection could be anywhere. It can be anything from a you know, tooth infection to patients with uh, diabetic food ulcers, so osteomyelitis, uh, urinary tract infections, pneumonia, et cetera. So we have to look for infection. The other eye is the insulin deficiency, which could be just non-compliance. Patient is not able to get uh, or afford the glucose or they're traveling and they forgot about it. I mean, you need to know about these things. Um, the third eye is ischemia. And ischemia is a big one because it's very serious. Most common types of, of ischemia that will be associated with DKA are uh, cardiac and bowel ischemia. Obviously, both really, really bad. Of course, you can also have uh, limb ischemia, 
you can have uh, CNS ischemia. So you have to be aware of those. And the fourth eye is the itis of pancreatitis, specifically um, more common in patients with uh, alcoholism. The T's, and that is the other part of the mnemonic, is for tox and trauma. In the tox category, we have the SGLT2 inhibitors that are becoming more uh, prescribed for the cardiologists now because they seem to be associated with better outcomes in patients with heart failure. Um, and these medications, although they per se don't induce DKA, but they only increase the elimination of glucose in the kidney, but they don't stop ketogenesis. So that's why patients on these medications can be um, at risk for developing DKA. Of course, then alcohol, cocaine, steroids, very common ones. Um, and one particular uh, picture that I want to share with your audience is uh, aspirin. And again, this is not because aspirin causes DKA, but because aspirin looks like DKA. And going back to my own failures, I missed this diagnosis in a patient with aspirin toxicity. A patient was slightly hyperglycemic, patient was obviously with Kussmaul uh, respirations, patient was acidotic, patient had ketones in the urine. Also, the smart me, you say, oh yeah, DKA. And I started doing all my DKA stuff and started some fluids, insulin drip, checking uh, electrolytes and so on. And again, after two hours, three hours, the patient was not getting better. The gap was not closing. Bicarbonate was not uh, getting lower. And I discussed the case with one of my consultants and the student officer says, you know what? Check an aspirin level. And what happened? Aspirin level was high. And I was treating a patient with aspirin toxicity with an insulin drip. How smart is that? So we referred the patient to uh, nephrology, the patient got that dialyzed, did well. But the point is that if you don't think about it, you can also make that mistake. So that's in terms of uh, toxin medications. And finally, it's trauma. That's the other T. And not because, um, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's common to see a patient with DKA getting into a car and getting in a car accident and arriving as a trauma call but it will be more common to have a patient with diabetes who gets into a car accident and again, the stress of the trauma and the injuries will tip him over DKA, right? So yes, we're gonna do all the our trauma thing, but we have to be aware that these patients are at risk for developing DKA if we don't check for it. You've previously talked about the concept of diabulimia. Can you explain what that means? Oh, diabulimia. Diabulimia was a completely new concept to me until I was preparing for the lecture. Um, and I didn't know about this. And I was very surprised why no one told me about this. Because diabulimia has really been hurting and killing patients running from overdoses. Because if we don't recognize this and we don't refer these patients to the public services, they will continue to um, come back with episodes of DKA with all the complications. Right? And typically, this is going to be a young female, typically, but not always, could be also a, a male patient, but typically a young female um, with repetitive episodes of DKA. And these patients 
intentionally omit their insulin doses to either completely stop or reduce the dose in order to avoid gaining weight. And that's basically the definition of diabulimia. And, and in the name it implies diabulimia, but it also could be anorexia. So it's basically the combination of a, a, a type one diabetes or insulin dependent diabetes and an eating disorder, right? And looking back after I was reading about diabulimia, I could think at least two patients very clearly that I missed. We treated, we did all the DKA stuff, they got admitted, they got better, they got discharged, but they just kept coming back. And now looking back on this, on this diagnosis, I totally missed them. I did not refer these patients to the psychiatric uh, service that they, they really need. And unfortunately, these patients continue to get worse and suffer all the complications of di the diabetes because their underlying psychiatric disorder is not being addressed. Adan, you mentioned the uglycemic DKA there uh, in what you were just saying, um, particularly around SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, what's the difference between that and the traditional form of DKA, and is it managed any differently? Well, uglycemic DKA, I joked that this is like a bad uh, a bad joke that went too far because it's not supposed to happen, right? A, a glycemic DKA just sounds like an oxymoron. Um, just like, you know, uh, aortic dissection without chest pain. It's not supposed to happen, but it does. And a glycemic DKA is one of those things that we have to be aware. Um, technically, it's not that much different in terms of the diagnosis, except that you will have all the manifestations of DKA at a lower glycemic level. All right? So usually, typically, typically it will be less than 250 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and I think translates to about 14 millimoles per liter. Um, but you will have a lower pH, lower bicarbonate, positive ketones, and a high anion gap metabolic acidosis. And specifically about the SGLT2 inhibitors, as I said earlier, um, we're seeing these medications being prescribed more and more not just for the diabetic patient, but also for the heart failure patient. So if you see the medication list and um, you encounter one of those uh, medications, um, just check some labs, ask more questions, you know, just to make sure that you don't miss it. I'd like to turn to your thoughts on the management of DKA now, particularly um, initially fluid therapy. Um, how do you go about your approach to, to fluid therapy in these patients? Uh, fluids is a cornerstone besides insulin of DKA management. And um, these patients are quite fluid down. An average deficit will be anywhere from five to eight uh, liters in an you know, adult uh, patient. Um, and the way that I approach fluid, uh, uh, fluid um, resuscitation in these patients is uh, based on ultrasound. I'll take a good look to the IVC and look at the heart and look at the lungs just to see where I am in terms of the um, fu uh, fluid uh, status of that patient. And I will start with one liter of fluid right at the back, even two, no, usually uh, maybe a, a 20 mLs, um, 20 mLs per kilo bolus uh, to start and then reassess, look at the IVC, check for uh, collapsibility. Um, again, look at the heart and see if it's still hyperdynamic or it looks empty. 
and uh, look at the lungs to make sure that there's no signs of fluid overload, especially in patients with heart disease. You know, I think that's, that's, um, that's how I approach it. Does it matter what sort of fluid that you give them? Um, it matters. It matters if you want to get your patients uh, quickly out of your department or even out of the ICU. And the reason for that is that we have now some evidence that patients who receive balanced solutions, their DKA results faster. And it went for four to six hours faster. There's no difference in mortality. But the fact that they resolve that much faster compared to uh, normal sailing, um, that for me is enough because I don't know if you're in the department, but if you're keeping patients longer and longer, if I can get a patient out of my department four or six hours earlier, to me, that is a win. The next question is about potassium management. Obviously, that's a, a key uh, component of, of the management of DKA. When do you introduce potassium and how do you go about it? Well, potassium is one of those things that if we don't do it right, we can really hurt people. So potassium is um, a, a, my simple approach because I like simple. I remember two numbers, 3.5 and 5.5. If the potassium is less than 3.5, I do not study insulin and we need to replenish potassium first to make it at least a 3.5. And the reason for that is that the treatments for the DKA are gonna draw the potassium really fast. And then you're gonna be in territory of hypokalemia-induced arrhythmias. So 3.5, if it's more than 5.5, first I get an EKG to make sure that there's no cardiotoxic effects of hyperkalemia. Uh, but I started insulin. We started the insulin drip. We started the fluids. It's okay. And how about in between, between 3.5 and 5.5, start insulin and potassium at the same time. What sort of volumes of potassium is necessary to replace um, their losses? Well, potassium in patients with DKA, um, they're, they're generally potassium depleted, even when their serum potassium is high, is just in the wrong space, right? So we have the potassium, you know, extracellularly. And um, it's, it's important to recognize that when potassium is low at the beginning, you know, these patients have large deficits of potassium. And it's said that for one mid equivalent per liter below normal, the potassium deficit is about 200, 200 and 250 milliequivalents. That's a lot of potassium, right? So we have to be very cognizant that you know, these patients are potassium depleted. And even if they're not, uh, or, or the potassium, the initial potassium is normal or high, overall, these patients have large deficits of potassium. And in the way I supplement, potassium, um, I follow one rule that I learned years ago from a, a nephrologist. And he basically told me that, you know, we do not give more than 40 milliequivalents in a liter of solution. We do not give more than 10 milliequivalents per hour in a peripheral IV. 
just because it's, it's uh, very sclerosing and, and harmful to the peripheral veins. And we don't give more than 40 milliequivalents per hour via central line. So if we keep this rule, you're going to be doing good for your patient in terms of supplement potassium. And if the patient can take oral, right? Remember, many of these patients are vomiting, but if they are, can, if they are able to take PO, it's okay. You can give them PO. Now, I just recognize that potassium chloride is not very uh, friendly for patients because the potassium pills are really big. And if you try liquid, it is very acidic. It's like drinking battery acid from your car. So I wouldn't drink it myself. But if you have potassium carbonate, that will be a much better option to give patients uh, PO. What other electrolytes do we need to pay attention to in this phase? Uh, besides potassium, magnesium and phosphorus are the other two electrolytes that we need to keep an eye on. Um, the standard with magnesium, magnesium is important because if, if you have a patient with low potassium and you try to supplement, but you don't keep magnesium, the kidney is going to pee out all the potassium and you're going to just keep chasing your tail. So the rule is if, if the patient has low potassium, you supplement your potassium and give magnesium. So it's hypo-K equals hypomag. You give K, you give mag. How much magnesium? No, you can start with a two to four gram bowls in a, in a you know, 100 cc's of normal saline um, over maybe 20, 30 minutes. And that will get you started as you can supplement your potassium. And uh, just continue following potassium levels. And that's another important point. Uh, following magnesium levels is kind of useless because only 2% of magnesium is extracellular. And very few labs do ionized magnesium. So keep your magnesium at front, continue checking the potassium, and supplement as you see need. And the other electrolyte is uh, phosphorus. And phosphorus, as you remember, is very important for energy generation and ATP. And this is everywhere, including the brain. And hypophosphatemia associated with the management of BKA has been associated with encephalitis, seizures. And obviously, you need a lot of ATP for uh, muscle uh, energy. And patients who have respiratory distress, they can quickly fatigue and run out of energy. And, and obviously, respiratory depression is a problem. So check the potassium early, supplement, see what you have in your, uh, uh, in your pharmacy. Uh, most patients, we have um, potassium phosphate. Uh, just check with your pharmacy and typically 20 to 30 mil equivalents per liter of IV fluid um, should be enough. Now, insulin is obviously the cornerstone of the management of DKA. Um, what do you start your infusion at and how do you titrate it? Well, insulin, as you said, is a cornerstone of um, DKA management. Insulin reverts all the metabolic madness that occurs during DKA, mainly glycogenolysis, gluconeogenesis, lipolysis, ketogenesis. All of those are reverted with uh, insulin. So the treatment for DKA is insulin. And the sicker the patient, the more insulin they need. And important thing to remember is that the insulin dose is not based on the glucose level. And I said again, you do not use the insulin to treat the glycemia. 
you're using insulin to revert the acidosis, right? So, and it's based on weight. And currently, the guidance uh, suggest that the appropriate dose to start an insulin drip is the 0.1 units per kilo per hour. And you start that immediately, if possible. If for whatever reason, there will be a delay in your insulin, it's okay to use a bolus, right? And we can talk about boluses uh, as well. Um, because that's another another thing. Typically, we, we can move away. We have moved away from the insulin bolus as uh, initial dose of, of, of the insulin. But there are some cases that you will need to do an insulin. And one of them is this. When there is uh, an expected delay for the insulin to start because you have to get it from the pharmacy or, or, or you, know, you don't have it available in the department, um, also in patients with severe acidosis, typically with bicarbonate less than five, these patients need an insulin bolus just to reach some steady state a little faster. And patients with cardiotoxic hyperkalemia, obviously, you need to do an insulin bolus. But for the rest of your patients, um, 0.1 units per kilo per hour should be okay. What um, what do you tend to titrate your insulin infusion against? If uh, how do you know you're winning, and how do you know that you're giving enough? Oh yeah, very important. So if your glucose your glucose should decrease anywhere from three to four millimoles per liter per hour, that's when you know that you're reaching enough concentration of insulin in the plasma to revert all the metabolic derangements of EKA. If it's not if your glucose is not decreasing by three to four millimoles per liter per hour, then you need to increase the dose, right? You need to increase, you titrate up. And very important point is that you do not titrate down. Remember, this is not about the glucose, it's about the acidosis. So you do not titrate down. You continue at your regular 0.1 units per kilo per hour. But if it's not, if the glucose is not reducing fast enough, and then you need to increase your dose. And then you can do 0.15, 0.2, even 0.3 in some cases with severe acidosis. And that will obviously depend in how insulin resistant the patient is, and that can vary from patient to patient. Um, you've also talked about the concept of long-acting uh, insulins in the early phases of management of DKA. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, long-acting insulin is, uh, is an important part of the management, um, and it's been found recently in studies that patients who receive long-acting insulin early in the treatment, they have a more, let's say, a smooth transition, a smooth landing of the rapid insulin drip. And the idea is that you have this background, this low-acting insulin, that um, you have constant control of the glycemia and constant suppression of the ketogenesis. And the studies also show that the patients who receive long-acting insulin, they have more rapid resolution of the acidosis. They have less rebound hyperglycemia without the risk of hypoglycemia, right? So it's it's a perfect uh, picture. And um, even, even if the patient is not regularly on a long-acting insulin, it's okay. You can give a long-acting insulin, and your options uh, will be the, the gargling insulin or detamir. Those are the two commercially available, at least in the United States. 
and the dose is 0.25 units per kilo subcutaneous dose. And if the patient is already on a long-acting insulin, you can give them the full dose. And you do it between two to three hours after the initiation of the rapid insulin drip. So at time zero, you start your insulin drip. Hour three, you give the long-acting insulin. And you basically uh, continue your regular management, right? And these patients, again, will have seem to be a faster resolution, less hyperglycemia without the risk of hypoglycemia. Now, in theory, I guess we shouldn't be seeing uh, the therapy for DKA ceased in the emergency department, but with longer stays um, happening around the world, I guess we are seeing that as a concept. At what point would you stop that level of interventional care for a patient in DKA? Uh, well, I guess it depends, uh, depends on your resources, where you're working. Um, but the, the main thing is to recognize that we are looking after these patients for longer and longer. As the ICU beds are full and there's no place to transfer, so we are managing these patients in the entire course. Um, important also to recognize that when appropriate those insulin and fluids, the DKA, the changes of DKA reverts between 12, 12 hours on average. So we can easily manage these patients in the emergency department to the entire course of the illness. And we will continue doing all the management until we see some, some basic parameters. Number one, that the patient looks improved, right? Very basic. The patient is not a kidney, the patient is not nauseous, he's not having abdominal pain, and ideally, the patient is hungry. The other issue is uh, to check and make sure that the, the an iron gap is closed, that the bicarbonate is more than 18 millimoles, that you're given a long-acting insulin, and that the glucose level is within a reasonable number, right? And reasonable will depend on each patient, but anywhere perhaps between 150, 170 milligrams per deciliter um, should be okay. Finally, Adan, uh, one group that obviously creates a lot of anxiety amongst emergency physicians is, the, is children. Are there any specific differences in the management of children? Um, and if so, what are they? Um, well, children are a special population because we tend to have more emotional involvement in the treatment of children, although the management is not that different uh, in terms of the insulin requirement and checking electrolytes and watching for hyperglycemia and all the other things that normally do with adults. The important thing that we all have to be aware is the concept of cerebral edema. And this has been a controversial issue for many years, specifically about the fluid management. Current guidelines say that we cannot give bolses or, or continuous bolses of fluid to children because we might be causing cerebral edema. And if you, if you allow me, let me tell you about a case that I had years ago 
that brought this to my attention. That's why I became very interested in this in this uh, in this aspect of the management of diabetes. Um, I was working in the United Kingdom back in those those years, 2013, I believe, and we had a uh, teenager that came by ambulance, insulin dependent diabetic, and this kid was uh, 11, 12 year old well-known to our service because multiple episodes of complications from diabetes. Um, This kid arrived uh, intubated. Uh, His glucose was extremely high, uh, very acidotic, very dehydrated, tachycardic, very, very sick kid, very, very sick kid. Um, And I was working that day. And the first thing I did, and now I got the ultrasound is trying to look for any other possible reasons. I look at the heart, look at the IBC, look at the lungs and so on. And I couldn't barely see the, the IVC. It was so empty. It was so collapsed. This kid was dry, 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 dry. So I started with you no know, resuscitation. I remember the, the dogma and the, the paradigm in emergency medicine is uteric shock. This kid was in shock. His heart rate was 170, 180, you know, and a systolic blood pressure in the you know, 60s. I mean, it was really, really sick child. And I start my fluid bolus. I give a bolus of 20 cc's per kilo. That bolus had already finished when the pediatric uh, consultant arrived. And she was furious that I have given a bolus of 20 cc's per kilo on a DKA child. And this brought it home to me, like, why are we doing this? Why, why is it that we... we we're allowing these kids to be hypotensive, hyperperfused for so long. So I started reading all the uh, literature about this topic and, and came across multiple studies, um, especially uh, the research done by Dr. Uh, Nathan Cooperman and his group. Um, he's been in the forefront of this, of this issue. And um, the, the idea is that this, this issue about fluid in children, um, the, the myth, and I will call it a myth uh, with quotations, because this is started with poorly done research. And that's the bottom line. In the 1980s, 1990s, um, researchers started uh, looking into this. Why are these children presenting uh, with altered mental status and they develop cerebral edema? They look at this, these cases and see what happened, what treatment they received. Uh, they did not use a control group and didn't control for any other you know, confounders. And they came to the conclusion to, yeah, here's the fluids. They published the data. And since then, the fear of God was placed in the hearts and minds of everyone looking after these children. And since then, we are giving very, very small amounts of fluids to these kids who are really sick. They're acidotic, they're dehydrated. And, um, and, and I think we're causing more harm than good in these cases. The, the, the initial study published by Dr. Cooperman in 2001, uh, the title was Risk Factors for Civil Edema in Children with Diabetic Ketoacidosis. And in this study, they did a multicenter retrospective analysis and actually control for all the other confounders, then control for severity. And they found that the children who develop cerebral edema, they have mainly four characteristics. 
right? Number one is that the lower serum bicarbonate at onset, they had a higher BUN, they had a lower PCO2, and many of these kids also received bicarbonate. And in these factors, they, they found that the, the children who, who, who developed DKA, besides all these four, kids also were younger, less than five years of age. The DKA was the presenting syndrome as a newly diagnosed insulin-dependent diabetic. Their glucose was higher, the creatinine was higher, the pH was lower. So in other words, they were sicker. These patients were younger, sicker, more acidotic, and more dehydrated kids. And who were the ones who were gonna receive more fluids? The kids who were more acidotic, more dehydrated, and look sicker. So I think the fluid was basically just a marker of the severity of the illness in which these children presented. Now, after this, Dr. Cooperman and his group um, started doing MRI studies in, in first in rats and then in children. And what they found is that the children who are sick or sicker, right, they tend to arrive already with signs of cerebral edema compared to kids who are not as sick. And the other interesting finding is that the edema that it was seen in MRI was the type of we see in, in patients with ischemia. And this is called a basogenic edema, right? So if you have an MCA stroke, you know, then half of your brain swells. Is, is, this is very similar to the, to the uh, edema that was seen in children with severe DKA. And that is different than cytotoxic edema. And if there are any radiologists in the audience that can tell us how they look different, but that was, that was the, the aha moment, right? Why is it that these children are uh, presenting with a type of cerebral edema that is seen in patients with global ischemia? And thinking about this, thinking about DKA, you know, we know that there are multiple reasons why these children can, these children can have a cerebral edema from hypoperfusion. So first of all, you have a hyperglycemia, which causes osmotic diuresis with hypovolemia. Then the acidosis causes hyperventilation, decrease in PCO2, which leads to cerebral vasoconstriction. Then you have the stress of illness with increased catecholamine uh, release that also cause vasoconstriction. All of this will cause decreased cerebral perfusion. And the decreased cerebral perfusion eventually will cause a global cerebral ischemia. And as the ischemic changes occur, will be inflammatory mediators, and finally the brain swells. So the point is, right, that if we continue having these children in the state of hypoperfusion, it is more likely that we'll be causing more harm you know, with um, 
a very restrictive uh, fluid protocol. So what do I suggest is for now, discuss with your intensivists and your pediatricians. And don't go rogue on this, by the way. Don't start giving fluids you know, left and right without you know, having your department on board. Um, because this is something that needs to be addressed as a system issue. Okay? And as more and more research um, is produced, and hopefully Dr. Cooperman will continue doing his work, um, but don't get fired about this. But do as much as your protocol will allow you to do in terms of fluid um, administration for children. And just stay tuned because it's very likely that as more information comes about this topic and we might be surprised that the children who receive more fluids may do better compared to the children with a restrictive fluid administration. Adan, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing some amazing pearls of wisdom there. I uh, really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our podcast interviews as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslocommunity.com.